The scripture passage comes from Ephesians chapter four. It says this, I urge you to live life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So the very first time I preached uh, in this church was when I was a candidate for this job. And the way it works in our denomination is you come and you preach a sermon, and then immediately afterwards, the whole congregation votes on whether or not they want you. Not that that triggers any childhood wounds from, you know, choosing teams on the playground. No, no, it's all good, right? So obviously, I passed since I'm here. And afterwards, a woman came up to me and said, welcome to our church. We fight like family, but we love each other, I think. And then she left. (laughs) And I haven't seen her since, so I don't know what that has to do with, what what she meant by that. But actually, over the years, I've discovered that she was pretty much completely right. We don't agree on anything in this church except for Jesus. And that's what is the most important thing. And that is what matters. Because there is conflict in every church and actually, when it comes to working through conflict, well, I think Bell Press actually we do it better than normal, better than average. I think we, we do okay on this. But there's conflict in every church. There's conflict in every family. There's conflict in every work situation. Jesus said, wherever two or more of you gathered, there I am. He also could have said, wherever two or more of you are gathered, there's going to be some conflict. Because people generate conflict. And as we know, our culture has a lot of conflict in it right now. We are more divided than we've been as a nation in decades. Conflict between different generations criticizing each other. Racial conflict, political conflict between liberals and conservatives who no longer view each other as opponents, but enemies who aren't wrong, but who are evil. And that conflict is dividing families. Some of you have that in your own family where family members have stopped talking to each other. Some people are getting divorced over this. This conflict is in our workplaces, it's in our schools, it's in our churches, it's all around. Causing some people to wonder, are we headed toward another civil war? And sadly, Christians often aren't making it better we're making it worse, just one more special interest group angrily demanding what we think we want, what we think we need. But if we're just as angry as the rest of the culture, then what we say to the rest of the culture is Jesus doesn't make any difference in our lives at all. So all of that is depressing. I'm done with the depressing part, okay? From here on out, the sermon is just so happy. Um, Good news, Jesus has a better way. Jesus has a way that has been proven. It has been tested and it has been proven for 2,000 years. He has a better way, less anger, less division, more joy, more unity, more hope, more peace. A Christ-centered way of being different and disagreeing in unity. Because that's what we see in the Bible. Just to be clear, biblical unity does not mean we agree. We don't agree on many things. We agree on some things, but not on other things. Biblical unity also does not mean we, quote, agree to disagree, which basically means let's not talk about it and walk on eggshells all the time. Biblical unity also does not mean that all views must be accepted because some views are biblically wrong. They are sinful, and the Bible calls them so. 
So here's what biblical unity is. It's a long definition, but work through it with me. Biblical unity is a supernatural transformation of the heart. This is something the Holy Spirit does. Transformation of our hearts where we disagree in ways that show the world the power of Jesus to bring different kinds of people together. And we allow the Holy Spirit to use our differences to refine our worldviews to align closer and more with God's. If that's who Christians were, if that's what we were doing, how would that change our families, our schools, our workplaces, our churches, our country? More joy, less anger, more unity. Not agreement, unity. Here at Bell Press, we are laser focused on being disciples, not just churchgoers, but disciples. Disciples are people who are becoming like Jesus. And we've said there are six characteristics of a disciple, marked by Jesus' love, equipped and eager to share the good news of Jesus, healers of injustice, live connected to a multicultural, multi-generational community, live sacrificially and obey Jesus as Lord through prayer and scripture. And at Vision Night, if you were there, I said, trouble with this list is it's long and it's hard to remember, so we need a jingle to kind of, you know, a song or a jingle. Some of you are actually writing jingles which is awesome. One guy put this list into chat GPT and said, write a song in the style of Taylor Swift and out popped a jingle. And other people are composing jingles, so maybe we'll have a jingle that we can sing soon because we are focused on this list. We've been working on it. This list is why we had a baptism Sunday because one of the ways that disciples tell their story is through baptism. Because one of the marks of a disciple is sharing the good news of, e of Jesus, we set a goal that by Easter, we would collectively have 1,200 gospel conversations about Jesus with people who don't know him. And we asked you to report those conversations. And we've had so far 277. So not our goal, a little bit shy of the goal. But here's the thing, that's 277 gospel conversations that might not have happened if we hadn't focused on it. And the point of it wasn't just to do some weird contest, but to change how we live. So hopefully those conversations are still happening. We are serious about discipleship here. We're doing this. And two of the characteristics of disciple, marked by Jesus' love, live connected to a multi-generational, multicultural community, are about how disciples disagree in unity because it's different than the world. This is a discipleship issue. So just short sermon series for a couple of weeks, we're gonna talk about how, how, do, how do we stay unified in all of our disagreements and differences? Less anger, more joy, more harmony. And show the world the power of Jesus to bring together different kinds of people. And this is a major theme in the New Testament. A lot of the New Testament talks about this. Not a little minor theme, major theme in the New Testament. Care to guess why? because there was so much conflict in the early church. The early church had all different kinds of races, people from Africa and Asia and Europe all in one church. They were different generations and ages, different politics. It was a multicultural, multi-generational community that looked different, thought different, worshiped differently. And that's not an accident. The New Testament makes it crystal clear God did that on purpose. Because God doesn't want uniformity in his church, he wants unity and diversity. The challenge, though, is a multicultural, multi-generational church is way harder than a church where everyone's the same, which is because people don't agree. 
Which is why today, people, most churches are filled with people who are pretty much the same. And people look for churches where everyone agrees with them politically and everyone is kind of more or less just like them because it's easier. It's less frustrating. It's less irritating. There's only one problem. Start in Matthew, end in Revelation. You will not find it in one verse in the Bible. Not one verse. Not one. But everywhere you will find a multicultural, multi-generational church. That is what God intended. And the early church had it. They had ethnic conflict. They had generational conflicts. They had political conflicts. Conflict is normal in the church. I will go one step further. Conflict in the church is not a bug. It's a feature. Because it means that we are different and diverse. And that is what God intended. Because it shows his power. Because it's not, that kind of community is not natural, it's supernatural. And in the text I just read, the Apostle Paul, writing to a very divided church in Ephesus, talks about how we get there. <clears throat> so that, in his words, the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith, maybe not unity in other things, but in the faith, and become mature, attaining to the fullness of Christ. Then we, doesn't say you, he includes himself, we will no longer be infants, Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. And look at the highlighted words. He contrasts being spiritually uh, mature with being infants, babies. And his point is, we are spiritual babies until we do the hard work of creating unity in the church. If we don't do it, then we're just spiritually immature. Because spiritual maturity isn't about how much theology we know, it's being focused on others, being quick to admit when we're wrong. It's, being, it's helping other people have what they need. So he says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Every effort. He doesn't say, you know, try it for a little bit, and you know, then if you don't like it, go back to fighting. He says, make every effort to preserve unity. So how do we do that, especially when we don't always agree and when we are so different? How do we do that? in our families, in our churches, in our country. How do, we, how do we do this? Well, the passage goes on. It says, be completely humble and gentle, bearing with one another in love. There is one body and one spirit, one Lord, one God and Father of all. So first step toward unity that is not uniformity, prioritize relationship. When Paul says bear with one another, the Greek word in the original text means don't stop loving someone because they irritate you or get on your nerves. In other words, don't cut people off. Stay in relationship. And Paul says there's one Spirit, Holy Spirit, one Lord, that's Jesus, one Father. That's a reference to the Trinity. That God isn't, doesn't just have relationships, God is a relationship Father between Father, Son, and Spirit. God is a small group. Relationship is the center of the universe. And we need relationships with Christians who are different than we are in order to grow spiritually. And this just makes sense. If part of spiritual maturity is unity, you can only practice that with Christians who are different than you, not the same as you. That's uniformity. Unity requires some differences. To borrow a phrase from a pastor friend of mine, Josh Gritter, used to be on staff here, unity is friendship across difference. Friendship across difference. And that is essential for us to grow spiritually as people. And as I've said before, the wonderful thing about church is there's always someone here to irritate you. 
right? Like we live to please, right? We're just here to meet your needs. Always someone here to irritate you, but that person that's irritating you is there on purpose to help you grow spiritually. So don't think this person irritates me. Think this person is sanctifying me because we need each other to become spiritually mature. And the very differences, those are the things that help us grow spiritually. Prioritize relationship. Instead of sending the email, meet face-to-face. Cultivate relationships with people who are of a different generation, race, politics, to know them as people, not as categories. So then the text goes on. (coughs) Later on, it says, get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander. And that word slander leads to step two of unity that is not uniformity. Assume good intent. Assume good intent. Because one of the ways we slander people is when we ascribe bad motives for what they're doing, thinking, or saying. Part of my job, part of my job is to be criticized. It kind of just goes with the territory. And nobody likes to be criticized, but I believe that feedback is our friend. Criticism is how we grow. Criticism is how we get better, which is why every Thursday morning, I give my sermon to a group of people who then criticize it. Like, that's their job. Their job is to criticize the sermon, and they're really good at their job. In fact, there's one man in that group that says his spiritual gift is criticism. I am inclined to agree with him. But it always makes a better sermon. It always makes a better sermon. So criticism is fine. But when it goes to motive, that's when it hurts. Now, of course, some people really do have bad motives. There are people with bad motives. But we are really quick, too quick, to ascribe bad motives to someone for what they do or say, especially if we don't know them very well. We just put a motive on them. The pandemic was interesting for pastors around the country. We all had the same experience, not just this church. Every pastor I know had this experience during the pandemic. Now, the question of what should the role of government be in public health, that is a legit topic for debate. That is a legit topic for debate. And most of the the critical emails I received from uh, this church, they were super respectful. Thank you so much. The majority were really respectful. But there were a few that were kind of a little over the top. You know, so like when we were, when we were shut down, I, I got, you know, a number of emails uh, calling me a coward, said that I was a coward. Um, a few of them, more than one, a few of them actually said I either was the Antichrist or I was preparing the way for the, I kid you not. Some of you are like, oh no, I kid you not, or preparing the way for the Antichrist. I was just like, oh yes, you've discovered my secret. <laughs> preparing for the Antichrist is what I live for. Gets me out of bed in the morning. How can I prepare for the Antichrist today? And then, when we opened back up, again, I got emails, again, calling me a coward, and I didn't care, that, who didn't care if people died. And I was just like, I just wanted to say, okay, people, come on, let, let's just for a moment assume that I am not Attila the Hun, okay? Let's just kind of go out on a limb here, not Attila the Hun, not Genghis Khan, and might there have been other motives for the decisions we made. And maybe those decisions were right, maybe those decisions were wrong, but motive-wise, might there have been something other than the fact that I'm the Antichrist? Might there have been another motive there that was a good motive? And just for the record, I am not the Antichrist, okay? I mean, because that would be kind of a letdown, don't you think? Like that 2,000 years of buildup and the Antichrist turns out to be a middle-aged pastor in Bellevue. Wah, 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 wait, you know, way to underwhelm, right? Motive, assume good motives and intent. And I know it's hard to do. 
I find myself ascribing bad motives to people that I don't know especially all too easily. And I have to stop myself and practice the spiritual discipline of saying, am I really sure that's their motive? Maybe I disagree with them, but maybe there's some good motives behind what they're doing or saying. Third ingredient to unity that is not uniformity, humility. The text says be completely humble. Not a little humble, completely humble, which is shocking because in this time, in this culture, in Roman culture, humility was not a virtue. It was considered a character defect. And humility means lots of things. Let me just, let me just name two. First, humility means thinking of others, not just ourselves. The Bible says in humility, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. This is how the church is supposed to work. This is how we're supposed to do it. I want you to have what you need. You want me to have what I need. Have the same mindset at Christ Jesus, who did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Look to other people's interests, not just our own. Because as I've said before, here's the thing. If everyone here is looking out for your needs and you are looking out for theirs, are your needs being met? Yes, they are. Yes, they are. Only without all the fighting and arguing and bickering, and that's just better. Humility is looking to the interests of others. And then the second thing that humility is, is I could be wrong. You know, it's just possible that I could be wrong once in a while. I may not always get it right. Most of the things we disagree about are really complex issues. And here's the thing, complexity demands humility. Complexity demands humility. The more complex something is, the less often our sentences should begin with the words, well, obviously, because if it was obvious, more people would agree. And then finally, so, a prioritized relationship, assume good intent, be humble, and then finally, and this is not in the text, but it's just good to know, know how your brain works. Because all the brain research shows that when we are in conflict, our higher reasoning faculties, they shut down, we retreat to what's called our lizard brain, that's all the fight or flight stuff. So in conflict, just remind yourself, I'm thinking like a lizard right now. Okay, and say that to yourself, not other people, okay? Like in conflict with your spouse, you know, don't say, oh yeah, lizard brain, not recommended. But I have found it helpful in conflict just to stop myself sometimes and say, you're thinking like a lizard. Don't think like a lizard. You're in your lizard brain, okay? We are humans. We use tools. We have language and opposable thumbs. You are the ruler of your inner lizard. You are in control of your lizardness. You are the boss of your lizard. Put him in check. Now, some of you may look at this list of ways to have disagreement and still be united and go, yeah, that's fine. That's all right. But aren't there sometimes in some people whose viewpoints are so destructive that we can't be in unity with them? And that's partially right. There are viewpoints that are destructive. There are certain viewpoints and ideas that are sin. The Bible calls them sinful. And those need to be called out and those need to be corrected. That's why Paul says, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, and that is Christ. In Christian community, we speak a truth that is saturated with love and we are humble and listen to each other so that gradually we correct each other so that our worldview comes closer and closer to that of Jesus. 
And I'll talk more about how to do that in an upcoming, how we actually do that in an upcoming sermon and how we do this with people that aren't respectful back and talk about that in an upcoming sermon. Years ago, when I was a college pastor, I had kind of a breakthrough moment on this kind of disagreement, unity thing that has stuck with me ever since. And it was back when I was a college pastor in California. Some of you maybe have heard me tell this story, but it was kind of a defining moment. And I had preached a sermon in the main church service And afterwards, I got a white-hot email from an an enraged man who didn't go to our church but was visiting our church that day. And the email, it was really angry. He said my theology was all wrong. He said I was leading people astray. He said I was not honoring God. I was disrespecting God. On and on and on. He was really mad. So knowing everything that I just preached about unity, I immediately flamed him right back. With shocking speed, my hand hit the reply button and I typed out a passionate response, the first sentence of which was, had you actually been listening and it only got better from there. I mean, I have a PhD in English. I marshaled the English language and I sent it into war. I mean, it was, oh, it was magnificent. It was artistic. It was aesthetically beautiful. It was so just commanding use of the English language. I reread it and I triumphantly hit send and thought, that'll teach him a lesson. But deep down, I knew that I had just hurt him as much as he had hurt me. But I got over it faster than I should have. Three months later, Three months later, this man emailed me and he said, three months ago, I sent you an email that was pretty rude. And when I got your response to my email, I was even more angry at you. But I have now come to realize that I, I, it wasn't right. The way I said it, the email I sent you, I hurt you and for that I apologize. And suddenly I felt very, very small and petty and sinful. So I emailed him back and I said, Let's get together. <clears throat> so we did, and, and you know, when we got together, I said, look, you did not deserve the email I sent you, my response. You didn't deserve that. You, you were just concerned that God's word be preached well and faithfully. You had good motives. Your motives were really good. And he said, yeah, but I didn't do it very well. And I said, no, you didn't do it very well. But then again, neither did I, did I? So it's kind of good that we both, you know, Jesus forgives both of us. And then he said, I'm embarrassed to tell you this, but I'm actually a pastor too. <laughs> So, so we were both pastors, right? Lizard pastors, but pastors. And, and, so, and then we started talking about how hard being a pastor is and the difficulty of being a pastor. And he said, I know, right? Like the angry emails, you know, which we had just been exchanging. Right? And, then, and then we went on, we talked about how being a pastor was a blessing. And at the end, we, we prayed for each other. Now, along the way, we also talked about theology and preaching and, and we didn't agree. We did not agree. We still didn't agree. But we disagreed in unity, in a way, and blessing each other. We prioritized relationship, met face-to-face, assumed good motives on the part of the other person. We got humble, looked to the needs of the other person, as well as able to admit that we were wrong, and we stopped thinking like lizards. And it felt so much better, guys. It just felt so much better than angry, being angry and divided and mad all the time. It just felt so much better, more hope, more joy, more unity. And for me, it was a turning point in how to disagree well. And now I still screw up. 
I still screwed up. I've had to apologize to some of you, and maybe some of you I should have apologized, and I didn't, so I apologize for that. And I know that some of the things we disagree about are deep and painful and personal, way more so than in the story I just told, and we'll talk about that in an upcoming sermon as well. But that moment gave me a paradigm to understand how do we disagree in unity. So action step for this week. Pick one of these things I talked about and every day pray to ask Jesus to help you do it because this takes prayer. I cannot do this on my own. I am too selfish. I am too sinful. I need you to help me and I need the supernatural power of Jesus because this kind of unity is not natural. Being mad at each other, that's natural. Being united with people who are just like you and think like you, that's natural. This kind of unity, this kind of unity, it's supernatural. So ask Jesus to help you do it every day this week. Pick one of those things, ask Jesus to help you with it. And then maybe even after the service, get prayer from one of our prayer ministers because this can only happen through the power of Jesus. But it's important that it happens because church, Bell Press, we have an opportunity here. We really do. We've got the ingredients. God is making us a more and more diverse community in all kinds of ways. We have a moment here, church. We have a chance. We have a chance to do something really amazing. We have a chance to do something that doesn't happen very often. We have a chance to do something that could heal our families and our country. What, what could be if we found unity with people who think different, look different, act different, vote different, different generations? Wouldn't it be so much better than what's going on right now? All the anger and noise and yelling and division. Families, churches, workplaces, schools, so divided. And Bell Press, I believe with God's help we'll do it. I believe we will be that New Testament church where different cultures and different generations come together and learn from each other and love the rich diversity of food and music and culture and perspective and be that every tribe, tongue, and nation church the New Testament talks about. In a culture of generational warfare, we will build a culture of honor and respect where younger generation honors the older generations and the older generations empower the younger ones. In a culture of toxic political divisions, we will bring liberals and conservatives together. We will pray for each other. We will be friends with each other. We will eat in each other's homes and take the best ideas from all sides as we further God's kingdom. We will not all be the same. We will not always agree, but we will disagree in a way that is so holy, so beautiful, so inspiring. People will say it's a miracle. And how, in such a divided culture, are you able to put all those different kinds of people together in one church? And we will answer with one united voice, one word only, Jesus. Lord, thank you that you unite what the world divides. We confess I confess, I fuel division far too often. Lord, correct us. Help us know your love. Give us your love for others and make us one as you and the Father are one. Fulfill that prayer you prayed 2,000 years ago. And may we be a place of very different perspectives and people that is still unified in a way that shows the world that you are Lord. In your name, Jesus, amen. Amen.